Jonathan Lethem's 2020 novel, The Arrest, takes place in a post-cataclysmic society where all of technology suddenly stopped working for unknown reasons. His protagonist was a Hollywood screenwriter, but works as a delivery boy since he doesn't have any practical skills in a post-technology landscape. Now, I interpreted this novel as an indictment on nerdy, affluent white boys from the suburbs who never learned how to sew, grow food, or build a bookcase. And yes, this book made me self-conscious. However, the overwhelming sense I got was that Lethem was holding a mirror up to himself more often than anything else. His uh, criticisms of uh, nerdy, affluent white boys from the suburbs was too specific to have come from an outside demographic. For instance, the protagonist is a film snob who is obsessed with gory samurai movies from the 1970s. Now, when something that's aiming more broadly, such as the Big Bang Theory, is taking shots at geek culture, they generally go after obvious signifiers like Star Trek or Batman. Only a fellow nerd would bother to dig deep enough to reference wandering samurai movies produced by Toho, because if, like me, you're a dorky white boy from the suburbs, this shit is your catnip. It's only a matter of time before we talked about one of these. Uh, kicking things off with Lone Wolf and Cub, Sword of Vengeance. Uh, my name is Ryan. This is a real deep dive. And I'm Rachel back once again. This was Ryan's pick this week, and I've never seen it, although I am aware of Lone Wolf and Cub and also Shogun Assassins, as we will be explaining later in the episode. My favorite version of this idiom is probably Lady Snowblood, and that's definitely getting an episode at some point, but I felt kind of weird doing Lady Snowblood first, since Lone Wolf and Cub is, you know, Koike's main claim to fame. So, yeah, this one first. Yeah, I didn't even realize that they were by the same guy until, like, recently, and I was like, oh, you know, that actually makes a lot of sense. Alright, the background of the series. Lone Wolf and Cub originated as a manga created by uh, writer Kazuo Koike and illustrator Goseki uh, Kojima. It was serialized from 1970 to 1976 and is considered a foundational tenet of manga in particular and comics in general. It was collected into 28 volumes totaling about 8,700 pages and unlike most manga artists, Kojima didn't use assistance. All 8,700 pages were drawn by him and only him. Yeah. Damn. Especially when you look at that stuff, because it's it's gorgeous and so impressionistic and wonderful. And it's like, oh, he didn't have like a background guy do like tree stuff. That's all him. <laughs> a lot of manga people die young because of the obsessive compulsions you need to do something yeah, like that. Um, my uh, my favorite manga, Fullmetal Alchemist, uh, Hiromu Arakawa, had she has her private life is very private. But she managed to have two babies during Full Metal Alchemist's run without a schedule slip. She had assistant, and she probably had a bit, her third baby right when it was ending. So, damn. Yeah, this isn't Dragon Ball where like the intern has to fill in all uh, Goku's <laughs> hair. This is this is one dude on his own. Anyways, Koike served as a mentor to younger writers and artists. People who are around my age or younger might recognize, say, Ranmo One Half, okay. Inuyasha, Vampire Hunter D, Fist of the North Star. All, yeah, all of those were co-created by individuals who were personally mentored by Koike. His 
His shadow extends far. In America, Lone Wolf and Cub was serialized by First Comics in 1987 and done in the typical way American companies handled manga, where they altered the pages so they and could like be they read. It, yeah, they flipped it. Uh, and they touched up everything else, and the company went out of business in 1991 before they could finish the series. Dark Horse Comics stepped in in the year 2000, and they started reprinting it with better translations, a closer preservation of the original manga format, and a glossary of historical terms in the background, and cover paintings done by Western comics artists who admired Koike and uh, Kojima, like Frank Miller, Bill Sinkovich, Matt Wagner, Mike Klug, Guy Davis, Vince Locke. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I mean, I'm enough of a weeb that, like, I barely notice the whole reading right to left anymore. At first, I was like, wow, this is a little tricky, but now I catch myself reading regular comics the wrong way, and I'm like, no, wait. No, don't do that. Read it the right way. <laughs> yeah, I was able to trade myself. It wasn't that hard. Yeah, I don't know why people complain about that. <laughs> Lone Wolf and Cub is praised largely for its exciting action, its sharp pacing, its strong characterization, despite the fact that the characters are both very terse. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> incredibly meticulous attention to historical detail, which I'm going to take as given. I know some aspects of the period in which it was set, but if you're going into like nitty gritty, most of what I know is stuff that I got from the glossary in the back of the Dark Horse yeah, trades. Yeah, it's like I know the bare minimum of Japanese history. So if you would like a more comprehensive dive into how the series was influenced by the politics uh, of the Tokugawa shogunate, I am not someone to turn to for that. Yeah, Broad I'm, strokes at best when yeah, we're getting into that. Yeah, I'm watching an anime that takes place in the Meiji period, and I'm still like, I need to look this up later. It's like, they do a pretty good job, but the fact is, is that it's made for Japanese people who kind of already know this shit, not, you know, dumb Americans like me. And with that out of the way... Recap? Yeah, recap. Lone Wolf and Cub's Sword of Vengeance is set in an unspecified point in the Edo period, sometime between 1603 and 1867. This is before Japan opened up to the Western world and was still isolated to most everyone except, I believe, uh, Portuguese Jesuits. Yeah, maybe, maybe silence can be its own episode. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> it centers upon Ogami Ito, the disgraced former executioner of the Shogun. He has been reduced to wandering the countryside, pushing a baby cart with his three-year-old son Daigoro inside. A banner hangs off the back of the cart reading, Skilled Sword and Son for Rent. <laughs> the opening scene finds Ito and Daigoro getting accosted by a bereaved woman who uh, went mad when her own child died. She frantically tries to breastfeed Daigoro as her apologetic mother makes explanations. Daigoro is hesitant, but goes along with it after his father gives a stern, unspoken command to him. I thought there is lots of eyebrows in this movie. Especially yeah. since Ito doesn't talk very much, she's mostly... Ooh, eyebrow. Angry eyebrows. This film demands a lot of facial acting and yes. body language, in oh, other words. Yes. The mad woman's mother attempts to pay Ito for his trouble, but he declines. Uh, he claims the die girl was hungry anyways, but at least by my interpretation, the scene implies that he feels sorry for the mad woman, and he is making excuses for declining the money in order to help them save face. Yeah, I feel like that's what we would call a character-establishing moment, that he's firm, but he is also a hard-working single father who loves his son. 
As he continues his journey, the rainfall makes Ito remember when his wife, Asami, was killed by three ninjas. This was ostensibly in revenge for Ito's execution of an infant daimyo, which is the very first scene of the, of the movie. But it was actually part of an elaborate plot by the Shadow Yagyu clan to frame Ito for treason and steal his prestigious post. You see, as the ninjas were killing Ito's wife, they planted a memorial marker with the shogun's crest in Ito's prayer chamber. Yeah, that's a big no-no. Yeah, later, as the complicit Inspector Bison examined Ito's home, he finds, scare quotes, the marker, (laughs) and accuses Ito of praying for his master's demise. Ito instantly sees through the ruse and kills the men who are waiting to ambush him, but his fate as a marked man is set. We jump back to the present, where Ito takes a job from a Chamberlain to assassinate a rival and his gang of henchmen. The Chamberlain tests Ito's prowess by having his two best men jump him, but Ito detects their presence and readily slays them without even having to sit up. Yeah, he just goes, and like, die girls just sitting there like, yeah, it's just another day, me and my dad out in the world. Yeah, another character establishing moment right there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, he is then told that the gang is holed up in a remote mountain village that hosts a hot spring spa pool. As Ito and Daigoro travel, they look upon elements of nature and so on, and Ito's thoughts go back to the immediate aftermath of the treachery that upended his life. We are then brought to a scene where Ito presents the infant Daigoro with a sword and a colorful ball. And even though Daigoro is far too small to understand what the hell is going on... He even says it to his kid. Yeah, Ito tells him that if he chooses the ball, he will follow his mother into death. Should he choose the sword, he will join Ito on his path of vengeance. Or as he puts it, to live like demons at the crossroads to hell. <laughs> yeah, and he's clearly relieved as much as he shows it for like a very tactured, serious guy that his the Daigoro picked the sword. Yeah, da- <laughs> yeah Daigoro cr- crawls to the sword and Ito remarks that death was likely the better option for him. But like Rachel, my interpretation based on the, the facial acting is that he- he's relieved that he doesn't have to kill his son and... When he's walking the path of vengeance against the Yagyu clan, he won't be completely alone. Yeah, he... Which he seems to be taking solace in. Yeah, like, he isn't really, like, saying, or, like, he talks to his son, but he isn't, like, saying, like, bopping around on his knee, but, like, he holds his son very lovingly. They splash around in the onsen, which I was like, aw, that's cute. And He's there's kind more... of smiling a little bit. You squint. <laughs> if we do later movies in the series, <laughs> there is a lot more to that. We'll, we'll be getting back to that when we're talking about the thematic aspects. Ito reaches the mountain village after going through one of those dangling rope bridges that are very popular in films like this. Yeah, it made me nervous and also made me think of the scene where Indiana Jones cuts the bridge. <laughs> yeah, he is instantly accosted by two ruffians, the rival Chamberlain, and his men had hired a group of sleazy ronin who have taken over the town, raping, looting, and pillaging at will all the while. Taking stock of his position, Ito gives up his sword without a struggle, convincing the gang that Ito's not that tough of a guy. Yeah, he's just some guy. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess it leads to my like, one like criticism of them is that we didn't. We know they're they're horrible, scuzzy people. We really didn't need like just a random rape scene in it. And I'm like, oh, come on, like I know that you know they're bad, but then like the lady who gets raped and her dad, like she's not even a character. She's just a prop to be killed so but that kind of took me out of it for a little bit as much as i really liked this movie that was the one moment that made me go hey we'll be talking about how sexual assault is far more common in east asian cinema in the after bits 
Mm -hmm. The Ronin take Ito and uh, Daiguro to the other travelers who are being held hostage as well. Uh, they debate whether or not they should kill Ito, but they're all pretty drunk and they're clowning around. They decide to let Ito live if he has sex with the town's remaining sex worker while they watch. The sex worker refuses to comply. She considers it undignified, but Ito steps forward and undresses when one of the men threatens her with a knife. Yeah, when we were watching this, I was like, oh, okay, he's really going to sleep with her? Is he going to whip out, like, his sword and, like, start cutting up the motherfuckers? But no, that he uses his uh, his other sword, yeah. as I said, <laughs> um, and just got to go through it, through with it. And I'm like, oh, oh all right, he's going to get laid. He's going to show this lady a good time. Yeah, one of Ito's <laughs> defining characteristics is he's extremely sympathetic to sex workers. This pops up again and again right, throughout the manga right, and the films. Right. You know, the hostages later brand Ito as a coward for, you know, removing his dignity. But the sex worker has a different perspective. She believes that he stepped down in order to save her life. And that was actually rather heroic of him. And she points out that terrified men are usually pretty bad at performing sexually, and that wasn't an issue for him, zing zing. Yeah, <laughs> hit, hit, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, everybody got that? <laughs> All right, we then get one more flashback, where the Yagyu clan attempt to arrest Ito and take him to the Shogun for execution. Ito fights back, eventually spurring clan head uh, Yagyu Ratsuto to offer a bargain. Uh, should Ito defeat uh, the Yagyu's finest swordsman in a duel, Ito will be exiled instead of slain. Yeah, really? there, there's, there's a promise that as long as he doesn't try to go back to Ito, the Yagyu will leave him alone, which is clearly a stall. Yeah. They're going to have to fight each other later. Eventually. And should we uh, remind everyone that while he's fighting everybody, he's holding Daigoro in his arms, just oh. hanging on his baby? Yeah, one of the motifs of the series is Ito trying to be a badass while his toddler son is just sort of dicking around at the yeah, same time. Yeah, I mean, he's a cute kid. He's kind of like hanging out with his dad. <laughs> Although Daigoro is sometimes useful. For instance, in this duel, Ito manages to behead his opponent because he is, you know, facing the sun and he sort of ducks his head. And Daigoro has a little mirror attached to his forehead that momentarily blinds his opponent. Exactly. Dirty pool, but the Yagyu's are motherfuckers they're asking for it yeah honestly so he has tenuous truce with the Yagyu clan and that sets up the status quo back in the present the rival Chamberlain and his gang are about to leave the village and continue with their plot to usurp power they plan to leave the locals alone but they feel compelled to kill the travelers who came to bathe in the spring since they're going to leave and they might talk to the police Ito and Daigoro make their entrance here uh, Ito uses a series of weapons concealed as parts of the baby cart to kill all of the ronin <laughs> yeah uh, should we uh, remark upon the fact that one of the guys, some of the Ronin, like the boss, he kind of looked at Ito and he's like, he's kind of familiar, but I can't quite place him. And then one of the travelers is a really sick samurai. So they're like, we'll kill you in a duel, you know, we'll let you die with dignity. But he's like, I'm too sick. He's like, let me commit seppuku. 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 I gotta commit Sudoku. Anyway, he's gonna commit ritual suicide. And then he's like, will you be my second, my executioner? When he says that, the guy's eyes just bug out of his head and he's like, Oh shit, he knows who Ito is now. They're all kind of fucked. <laughs> Ito kills the fuck out of all of them. Yes. But one of the Ronin has matchlock pistols, but Ito is able to deflect the bullets with the armored undercarriage of the baby cart before he splits the shooter's forehead in twain with his blade. Yeah, it's like, they're cool. Guns are cool, but you have to reload them. 
Ito leaves the village uh, with a sex worker attempting to follow behind. Ito threatens to cut the rope bridge leading to town if she continues her pursuit because the path through the crossroads of hell is for him and Die Girl alone. No companions. Yeah, I mean, sad as it was because clearly she, you know, had a bond with Die Girl. Um, but yeah, it's probably better for her. I don't think it'd be really good for her safety or her career if she, you know, went around with them. Yeah, so Ito uh, and Daiguro wander off. To the next adventure. To the next adventure. V- very much the next movie coming up. This movie is based on an incredibly episodic manga and feels like it. More on that in a, in a bit. Mm-hmm. But first, the production. The screenplay for this is written by Kazuo Koyiki himself. This is a bit different from certain other films that are based on this manga, most notably Lady Snowblood. Unlike Lady Snowblood, this film is incredibly faithful to the manga. Many shots are directly lifted from Goseki Kojima's illustrations. I'm sure you could nitpick and split hairs about things that they did a little differently, but more or less you're watching the manga. It was uh, optioned by Toho largely because of the success of the Zatoichi franchise, arguably the most iconic franchise in the genre. The director of this film, Kenji Misumi, he directed this and the next three Lone Wolf and Cub movies. He directed five Zatoichi films, including the first. Also, uh, Tomisaburu Wakayama, who plays uh, Ito in this, is the brother of Shintaro Katsu, who played Zatoichi in 25 films between 1962 and 1973. Also played the character in 100 episodes of a TV show airing between 1974 and 79, and then appeared in a final film in 1989. So, perhaps... Wakayama looked at his brother and was like, hey, I could use a franchise like that. Yeah, give me the money. Uh, yeah, I even, like, looked him up. Also, his whole family were, like, theater actors in Japan. He was also a judo instructor for a while. You know, that doesn't surprise me one bit. The man is built like a brick house. Like a lot of Japanese franchise films from this period, Sword of Vengeance and its sequels were filmed back-to-back-to-back. The first film was released in 1972, and the last came out in 1974. That's fast. Yeah, uh, the mindset in Japanese filmmaking, as it was explained to me, is just to hammer out sequels at a rapid clip if the first one ends up being successful. Just milk a successful franchise for as much as you can get, which is why there's like 80 Godzilla movies. (laughs) As such, uh, Akihiro Tomikawa, who plays Daigoro in this film, doesn't age too visibly over the course of the series. He more or less looks the same when we get to our uh, sixth and final film. Yeah, he's just a little kid. I will say for a child actor, he's, he's very good. Yeah, he's, he doesn't feel like a prop. That uh, leads us getting to the cast. First off, we have Tomisaburu Wakayama's Ogami Itu. The studio was skeptical about casting him, despite the fact that his brother was working out quite well for them. But they felt he was too fat. See, if really? You, if, if you look at the manga, Ogami Ito is like this big, impossibly tall beefer of a man, just really ripped. Yeah, but you know what, though, is that I feel like it's more realistic for him to be just like a guy who's got a bit of a gut. He's got big arms. He also doesn't have a very strong jawline. He's got a double chin. Yeah, he does. Honestly, I find that very endearing about him. (laughs) Yeah, when someone from the studio just questioned him to his face, he decided to demonstrate his capabilities by doing a backflip just right in front of him. Philadelphia where Max like, I do backflips all the time. <laughs> yeah, some of that. 
Wakayama ended up uh, ending the series in frustration. Toho just wanted to keep it going, like the the Zaitoichi films. But after mm-hmm. six, Lone Wolf and Cub was also licensed for a TV series, and, and he would not be. Right, yeah, they they wanted to cast other actors for that, and Tomi Saburo Wakayama was offended by that, and just decided, all right, I'm done. Six mm-hmm. six is going to be the last what one. What happened with the TV show? Oh, the TV show ran for a long time and is considered a classic in its own right. Oh, okay. I do think that uh, Wakayama does a fantastic job in this. He's very good at capturing uh, Ito's stoicism and resolve, but there's still flashes of empathy, despite Ito's best efforts to suppress them. You, If you look especially at his brow, as Rachel pointed yeah, out earlier, in his eyes. In yeah, he, he acts with his face a lot, and he is a very physical, you know, yeah. he's a presence. <laughs> yeah, not only when he's reacting sternly, but and uh, but also when he's giving, like, his very deep voice, yeah, guttural uh, man of few words rebuttals. His yeah. eyes are often betraying things. Yeah, and he, he does smile at his son sometimes. <laughs> when he's telling his son that it was probably better that if for him to die, you can tell at least a part of him doesn't mean it, just the way the way he twitches yeah, while he's saying I, it. I think so too. I think even if Diver had gone with the ball, I kind of don't think he would have done it. He would have tried, but probably failed. Alright, next up, uh, Akihiro Tomakawa as Daigoro, which, it's a three-year-old playing a three-year-old, and you were astonished by how many good takes they got out of that three yeah, year Yeah, they got a lot of good takes out of it. I mean, I'm thinking a lot of soap operas where kids are like, I'm looking around. I forget that this is a podcast sometimes. You can't see what I'm doing. But yeah, he, he's very playful and very yeah, endearing. And cute. when he interacts with the other humans who aren't his father, especially uh, those are the moments where he shines. They're all like, aw, he's so cute. The, the part his dad's was, scary, but he's cute. In the hostage situation, he just sprints to the one bed. Yeah, he's like, flop. He's like, he's, he naps through like a lot of shit. <laughs> And we'll be talking about this a little bit more in the thematic parts, but the dynamic between Tomi Saburo Wakayama and Tomikawa as Daigoro is a big part of why Ito is a sympathetic, likable protagonist. Yeah. The moments where he shows that he is human the most are when he's interacting with his son, unsurprisingly. Yeah, I, I, but it would not have been as interesting of a movie. It still would be kind of like, yeah, cool, samurai guy out for revenge. But the fact that he has a kid, it makes the stakes higher and the character is emotionally richer. Yeah, Tomikawa never acted again after the last Lone Wolf and Cub film. I haven't been able to find too much information about him. I, most of the accounts I did come across haven't been verified. The only thing I know for sure is that in 2005, he got a three-year prison sentence for gun smuggling. So maybe he's one of those tragic child actor cases. Who knows? That's unfortunate, though. Two supporting characters I wanted to highlight, at least briefly, was uh, Yunosuke Ito as Retsuda Yagyu. He is a celebrated Japanese character actor, appeared in over 90 movies between 1947 to 1979. You believe you've got him pegged in something else. Yeah, I swear. I just don't know. That's the problem. He has, like... He was clearly acting under a lot of makeup, but there was just something about him that I was like, I swear, I've seen him in something. I just cannot place him for life with me. Yeah, I looked through a partial filmography. He worked with Kurosawa a lot. That might be. You know why? He kind of reminds me of, of Ron. Ron. Oh, yeah, he's not in Ron. He's, okay. in, he's in Sanjuro and he's in Akiro. 
But uh, this is his only lone wolf and cub film. The uh, Ratsudo Yagyu character comes back, but he's played by other actors in the sequels. Mm. And the last person I want to mention is uh, Tomoko Mayama as uh, Osin, who's the sex worker that uh, Ito rescues in the, mm. over the course of this film. She worked from 1961 to 1984. I haven't seen anything else she's ever appeared in. The most prominent film besides uh, Lone Wolf and Cub, according to IMDb, is something called Notorious Concubines. So... I guess she had a type. Maybe. I, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's a fairly thankless role, a fairly stock character. In the Lone Wolf and Cub films, there's only really one female actress who uh, distinguishes herself. She's also an assassin. Oh, cool. Yeah, we don't see her in this one. We'll talk about that a, a bit more when we get to how sexual assault is treated in both Lone Wolf and Cub and comparable films in the idiom. For, uh, I do like her performance in this. Me she too. isn't given much to do outside of what you uh, expect a stock character like this to do, but I, I think she sells it, especially the part where she's chasing after him on the bridge. Yeah, I agree. And she also like busts all the Ronin's balls constantly. And I'm like, yeah, I approve of this. She's like, yeah, you're all a bunch of weenies. And she's like, Fine, I will die nobly. Just like, yeah, fuck you. So I, I respect that. Uh, getting into the legacy of this film, this movie first came to shore under the title of Shogun Assassin, sort of. In 1980, the international rights to Lone Wolf and Cub were acquired by Roger Corman's New World Pictures, because, of course, Roger Corman has a finger in his pie. If you have seen <laughs> our previous episode of Chopping Mall, that was the first Corman film I covered. Yeah, and then... Yeah, more will come up just because I have too many co-hosts who like garbage. Hey, uh, <laughs> hey I like garbage too. <laughs> A heavily edited mashup of the first two Lone Wolf and Cub movies were put together by director Robert Houston and his partner, former Andy Warhol protege David Wiseman. Uh, the film, titled Shogun Assassin, uses 12 minutes of Sword of Vengeance, with a remainder coming from the next film, Baby Card at the River Sticks. The gore from both films were emphasized, <laughs> and we also got lots of intrusive voiceover narration from Daigoro's perspective, which was threaded throughout the movie and gave context to the, to the Chopsaki elements, especially the parts that were edited. Despite this... Shogun Assassin fails to properly explain why Ito's wife was killed or how Ito was framed for treason, which seems like a big thing to overlook. Yeah, that's, that's a plot hole you can drive a car through. Also, having constant narration from Daigoro seems to uh, undercut the role of the character, not only in the quiet moments, which I'll talk about more in the thematic bits that completely ruined in Shogun Assassin, but a good chunk of these scenes, especially in the first few films, is just Daigoro being completely oblivious to his father, just being this rampaging violent maniac. Yeah, he's just like, it's just another fun day with me and my dad. That's, yeah, just, that, that's it. He's just a cute kid. He's just giggling and looking at clouds. He's going hee hee and singing a song about turds. Like, he, he's, not he's not traumatized by this, in obviously. In later films, he still like singing and dancing and smiling <laughs> at clouds and stuff. But when it, when it comes to stabby time, Daigoro has like figured out how the baby cart works. And he starts like throwing knives out at his dad when he needs a new gun, needs yeah, a new blade. Yeah, it's like, he go down. <laughs> Shogun Assassin was very successful in the grindhouse circuit, but its main claim to fame was being an enduring cult classic in the video.
video rental market. If you've listened to my episode on chopping mall and certain other ones, you already have a taste of how I described how uh, video rental places were like in the 80s when mainstream films were reluctant to put out VHS copies of their biggest hits. You had to fill the space with something, and a lot of cheesy, low-rent exploitation films were thrown in there, as well as dubs of foreign movies like this one. It had a a huge swath, very influential. A lot of people first encountered this through the Wu-Tang Clan. Now, uh, its most verbose member, Jizza, his 1995 solo album, Liquid Swords, features dialogue samples from Shogun Assassin laced throughout. Usually, the Wu-Tang Clan used Chinese martial arts movies for sample fodder. This is a rare Japanese exception. And, uh, I mean, I love that album, but I'm a comics nerd, so I was (laughs) like, oh, they're referencing Lone Wolf and Cub. Yeah, I mean, I had heard of it in the, the flare-up talk about next, is that um, I actually was like, wait, so yeah, I heard about the movie The the, the Bride walks with their daughter at the end of Kill Bill, and I was like, oh, wait a second, that's Shogun Assassin, you're like, it is Lone Wolf and Cub, and you explain like, the whole editing thing, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I mean, there, it's like, they have to reference it, even though the bride doesn't really go out of her way to, like, kick ass with her daughter, she's mostly like, I don't want kids to watch this kind of thing. Uh, Yes, uh, Beatrix Kiddo watches Shogun Assassin with her four-year-old daughter that she's just met in the bedtime scene in 2004's Kill Bill Volume 2, which is one of the few moments in that film that I think work. I really like the first Kill Bill. I think Kill Bill Volume 2 doesn't work at all. But, uh, yeah, we differ on that, and that's another episode. I will fight you on that on another episode. I actually (laughs) think that when it comes to characterization, Kill Bill Volume 2 is the better movie, even though everyone remembers Volume 1. That's all. (laughs) Well, I think Kill Bill Volume 2 tries to make the character stuff work, and it's just that it doesn't stick the landing. But once again, that's another episode. another episode. You and I could fight about this in the next 20 minutes. (laughs) Yeah, okay. um, Yeah, Frank Miller... As I, as I mentioned his name before, he cites Lone Wolf and Cub as an influence on his 1983 cyberpunk graphic novel Ronin. He also sees it as an influence on his Sin City series. Stan Sakai, who is known for his Usagi Ojimbo, which is another wandering samurai series, except this one stars anthropomorphic cartoon animals. The lead character is a bunny who ties his ears as a top yes, knot. I know! I think it's so funny! But yeah, there are various <laughs> nods. Yeah, pastiches of Japanese pop culture laced throughout Usagi Ojimbo. Usagi Ojimbo runs into a lone wolf and cub analog who are called Lone Goat and Kid. Which... <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> yeah, that, that, was, that was a cute touch. Yeah, yeah I bet it was actually cute. Max Allen Collins cites the framework of Lone Wolf and Cub as a springboard for Road to Perdition, which I never would have uh, assumed on my own, but after pointing out, I'd be like, oh, hey, yeah, that is Lone Wolf and Cub. Yeah, except... I mean, I've never seen it, but isn't it a guy with his son while trying to fight the people that kill his wife and his other son? Yes, yes, he gets marked by the mob, but he has to take his preteen son along with him as he goes on the revenge mm-hmm. rampage. Yeah. Once you frame it that way, oh yeah, I see it. Yep. And most notably, the re- relationship between Din Djarin and Grogu and the Mandalorian is heavily indebted to Lone Wolf and Cub. 
I think The Mandalorian was, you know, after the Disney Star Wars movies had mixed reception among Star Wars That's uh, going to be psychos, its own episode. <laughs> they decided to go back to Star Wars' roots. In other words, just taking like a wandering samurai classic and just slapping science fiction drag on top of it. Because yeah. Star Wars has many parallels to Kurosawa's The Hidden Fortress. And it's like, oh, hey, uh... How about Lone Wolf and Cub, except it's Star Wars? Yeah, it's like, we're going to have Brown make the cutest freaking little critter. He's got big eyes and a round head because the human brain is wired to be like circle round equal friend. And also, <laughs> if it's a puppet, we don't have to worry about yeah, the actor aging out of the part. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I, gotta say, I, I don't know, are we going to talk about themes now or, or something else on your, on your little list? All I got left is the theme bits. Okay, well, I, I was going to say that um, you care about Ito more because he has Daiguro. And, and I think that the whole idea of allowing your character to process, especially like a very stoic character who could be one note otherwise, to process their emotions through interacting with another character or object, I guess, it's good for character development. Like, it's why, let's say, for example, why John Wick works so well. You can describe the plot of the movie to anybody who maybe doesn't watch violent action movies and say, well, it's about a guy who goes out for revenge after his adorable puppy is killed. And you're like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And, of course, you know, John still, he loses the dog, but he has to get another one at the end. And for the next two films, it provides some kind of conflict and tension because he can't really pick up his dog and carry him around. He has to, like, find someone to watch his dog while he goes off to kick ass. So it provides some conflict and motivation for him to come back and do his thing. That's a sensible parallel and yeah. also an obvious one for you to make, considering yeah. your personal fandoms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, I'm going to bring it back home by bringing up uh, Samurai Executioner, a series that Kazuo Koike and uh, Kojima started two years after Lone Wolf and Cub, and essentially looks and reads more or less the same, But and uh, the Samurai Executioner main protagonist has a lot of parallels with uh, Ogami Ito, but the main difference is that this guy doesn't have a kid. And that makes a whole lot of difference. I mean, Samurai Executioner, I like it, but I can see why it didn't even last half as long. Yeah. Because it's mostly just case of the week. Okay, who is the criminal that the Samurai Executioner is going to take care of this mm -hmm. time? And I didn't connect to him in the same way just because... Mm -hmm. Like, the series opens with him killing his dad and then killing the first woman who ever loved him in order to demonstrate his lack of connection to anything besides his own duty. Yeah, that just doesn't work quite as well. You you need, you know, conflict. And you also, but I think besides the need for conflict for your characters, you also need, let's use another C word, compassion. You, you need, like, that sort of, like, tie between a character. You know, I think a stoic loner character can be cool, but there needs to be something more to it. And usually that's often through, like, a pet or a kid. And I feel like every other, like, maybe badass and child duo probably owes a little something to, you know, Lone Wolf and Cub. Another Kawiki uh, protagonist, Lady Snowblood. Yes. She doesn't have a kid, but she does have a very clearly defined goal that she's entering, entering towards. Mm -hmm. And 
And that brings back to the old bit of advice where in order to have your audience connect to the character, they don't necessarily need to be likable or utterly sympathetic, but they do need to want something. Yeah. And I also think that it's different because Lady Snowblood is a, a lady. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that there's sort of that automatic level of, like, assumed tenderness, assumed sense of protection because she's a woman. You know, there's that kind of that negative stereotype that guys can't be, like, affectionate or show emotion or, or play with their children. It's it's different because he chose a father to a son, not if he was just by himself. You know, it, it's just not as remarkable. It's more remarkable that you've got, you know, it's basically a single dad who's unemployed taking his kid on a road trip i boiled it down to its bare essentials that that's it that's what lone wolf encompasses that that leads me to uh something else i wanted to highlight which Mm -hmm. is that the quiet moments of both how the manga and this film are put together as shogun assassin ditches all the quiet moments (laughs) oh yeah kenji misimu uh, takes time to focus on rainfall dog nursing its puppy and lots of other smaller moments which he continues throughout the uh, later films and i think that does a lot to give depth to the characters who don't talk all that much and it also lends contrast to the fight scenes it makes them seem more intense because you have that quiet part where they're just walking around the roadside and looking at the the doggo and all that yeah like there's this scene where um you know ito and daigoro are playing in the onsen and then the next scene is him you know cutting the motherfucker it's like oh you can see him playing with his kid and he wants his son to have a good time and then oh the most humanizing scene in the film is when they're in the hot springs yeah, together yeah it's cute he's splashing his son he's not just sitting there like hmm i'm a stoic man with very very expressive eyebrows yeah, and the last thing i wanted to bring up was just um well the last thing I wrote down is just how this is structured, because it is structured just like the manga, where things smash into each other, and there are multiple flashbacks, and the film doesn't tell you that the flashback is happening. The manga has clearly defined chapter breaks, so you can figure it out, yeah. which I have mixed feelings about it, because I do think that it hurts the coherence of the film, but at the same time, for jumping back and forth in time, it does force the audience to pay more attention. I, I actually really didn't notice. I kind of expected there to be some kind of a flashback to fill it in. I mean, there were more flashbacks than I was expecting, but, you know, it's true that it is very episodic because it was based on a, what, a weekly, monthly manga? Yeah, I believe it was serialized uh, weekly. Oh, okay. All the flashbacks are done through smash cuts. Like, Ito will look at rainfall, and then he will think back a scene that happened while it was also raining. Yeah. Which does also give you an insight into Ito's mind, mm-hmm. which once again, this is a terrorist man. Yeah. <laughs> Most of what you convey from him is stuff that you interpret through body language and uh, facial acting. Exactly. Yeah, the one bit that I guess now is as good a time as any to bring it up, especially if we're going to be doing later films down the road, <laughs> is the depiction of sexual assault in this film, which it is yeah, very direct, very unflinching, very much out there and not in a way that Western audiences are accustomed to. Yeah, I mean, I, I was still kind of like, oh, yeah. I mean, what woman likes to watch that? I mean, anyone really likes to watch that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's different. I mean, I do like girl art, though. <laughs> yeah, I, oh, I, I am ambivalent about it myself. I have had it explained to me 
that sexual assault is far more common in East Asian action films, especially certain ones that get uh, exported to the I'm United States. I'm guessing the censorship laws are different. Uh, yeah, that's part of it. Uh, also, wide tonal disparities are more easily forgiven in the Chinese, Korean, and uh, Japanese market, because I was shocked by certain martial arts films that I watched where the overall vibe of the film is comedic. You're having, like, silly slapsticky uh, kung fu fights and then rape scene and it was like that clashes with the with yeah. the general feel of the rest of the film but apparently culturally that's not as much of a stumbling block for people over there yeah i mean my my thought is this i'm not like a huge fan of, of rape revenge movies just because like i don't want to watch that uh, I watch, I watch a woman or a character be sexually assaulted because it just makes me very anxious and upset because I don't want to think of, you know, that happening to me or happening to somebody I know. But I think that depending on how it's depicted, I usually will give it a pass if a movie is directed or it's put together by a woman most of the time. I will say that most of the time. And also if the woman who is the survivor of this incident is actually a real character. Like I actually really like the movie Revenge where a woman goes out with her boyfriend and he's kind of a, an idiot, a, a jerk and her boyfriend's friend rapes her and then she spends the rest of the movie hunting them down with a shotgun and it's really cool and like and even the the scene of the assault it happens mostly off camera because like you don't need to see it happen you know what's happening and then it spends it is a pretty violent movie but most of it is just like straight up people getting their heads blown off then you know watching a woman be violated because honestly if i'm watching a movie i'm here for escapism i'm not here to have like a reminder of what i have to fear every day as a woman you know so that that's my thought from the the lady half <laughs> yeah i have ambivalent feelings about it myself uh, as an artist i'm usually on the side of full expression i'm very anti-censorship however i do think that artists should be mindful of certain things and i mean i don't want to dwell upon this but i'm a sexual abuse survivor myself and i have personally steered away from things like I spit on your grave that brings up stuff like that because, mm-hmm. yeah, it does bring unpleasant memories to the table and if certain other artists want to use it as a as a conduit to deal with their own survival of, uh, of sexual violence, I have encountered media like that as well yeah. and sometimes I appreciate it and sometimes I understand that it's well crafted but it brings back ugly memories that mm-hmm. keep me from connecting to it and other times I don't think it works at all but hey if it helped you work through some stuff good for you. Yeah. <laughs> One thing I noticed from Koike reading his other work and seeing it adapted into other media is that he will take any pretext he has to shoehorn some nudity into the story. Yeah. And a lot of it is blatantly in there to titillate the audience. Mm-hmm. And that occasionally extends to the assault sequences yeah, and that leaves a bad taste yeah, in my mouth honestly i will say with this one it did kind of leave a bad taste in my mouth especially when comp- contrasted to the scene between ito and onsen which is shown to be like a mutually pleasurable experience and is far less graphic than yeah, it's, the it's, rape scene like it's a series of dissolves where yeah, they all sort of blend like, into I each mean, other. I, and, and, I, and I am not no, I am no proof. Like, I, I, you probably heard me ran out other episodes that I want more penises in, in movies. I want, <laughs> I want some dick. But 
Um, you know, I'm willing, like I said, to give it a pass, especially if there's a movie where, you know, because it is almost not really afforded to survivors in real life. If you want to make a, a movie where, uh, you know, we watch a rapist's face get smashed in, I'll be there with popcorn, you know. But I also, I don't really, I, I like violent movies, but sometimes, though, is that if I'm watching something that has, like, a woman in distress, and she's just there to be brutalized and isn't a character, or if she doesn't survive, and if she doesn't win, or, like, I want to see the the woman or the victim, I want to see them win. Like, if if they get, you know, brutalized and beaten up a bit, I don't want her or him or them, I don't want them to die at the end. I want them to be there and kick ass, which is why... I don't look up the ending to Promising Young Woman, and that's why I was so disappointed that movie was completely misadvertised. So that could be another episode, but probably not on this show because I don't want to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bringing uh, things back to Lady Snowblood, mm-hmm. the manga has a lot of the stuff I mentioned earlier mm-hmm. the nudity that's meant to titillate, which sometimes includes assault sequences. But when they made the movie, Pretty much all of that shit is removed. Yeah, honestly, the whole, like, the I, like I said, I was willing to, you know, give that a pass because even if um, Yuki's mom dies at the beginning, it's kind of more like, this is her revenge. Like, she wants to do this. She's made a deal. Like, and, and she basically, she's in prison because she killed her, one of her rapists and then her daughter is going to revenge her the rest of the time. Like, I was like, all right, I can jack with this. This is cool. Lady Snowblood, I'm sure, is getting its own episode down the road, so we'll yeah. be talking about the contrast between the weirdly horny manga and the movie adaptation later on. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, that's about everything I want to talk about for uh, the first Lone Wolf and Cub movie. Is there anything we haven't uh, touched upon that you'd like to mention before we sign off? Uh, I don't know. Let's see if there's something nice to say since we had that whole conversation. <laughs> I really liked it. I, I definitely will watch like the rest of them because it was kind of like a, a hole in my my movie watching experience. But um, I, I just really I really liked it. I'm like I'm a sucker for cute for cute things amongst like dr- drama. You know, I was like, oh, it's just him. He's pushing his baby carriage. It has a sword in it, and his son's just so cute. He's got his little bowl cut. Yeah, I didn't yeah. want to. I didn't want to bring up the rape scene in order to like harsh people's mellow yeah. and discourage them from watching it because but, I do think it's a very good movie. I like yeah. all these movies and I think they're worth tracking down. But you Content know, warning. yeah, I don't think it's fair to deconstruct the film and then just sort of gloss over that. Yeah, part. I mean, if if it wasn't like on the official notes, which I was expecting it to be, I was going to bring it up as my my one my one beef. But uh, no, I I, I kind of ran out of room and assumed you were going to bring it up. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> I got these little like I write tiny, but I ran out of space. You really do write tiny. I have like like teenage girl bubble handwriting. Yeah, I really don't have any any other thought, but you know, I love revenge movies, so I enjoyed it, and I will watch the rest of them. All right, join us next time. Probably not for Lone Wolf and Cub right away, but eh, probably more. Yeah.